Hello, everybody. Uh, we have a very special show today. Um, this is a brand new sort of podcast series that I'm going to be uh, hosting. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of the host, but uh, and and uh, my co-host is uh, Father Panayotis Papayorgiu, and uh, yeah, introduce yourself, Kuba. Yeah, hi, Stradi. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, Stradi, for creating this opportunity. And we will get the chance to talk about a lot of things. So go ahead and uh, start with what your idea is, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I, I also just wanted to say that uh, uh, this was something that we have been thinking about for a long time. And I think it's a format people will like because they'll get to hear your thoughts, they'll get to pick, you know, we sort of will pick your brain, as we say, and 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 you know it'll it'll be more. How's what's the word? We can flesh things out rather than um, you know a, a, a bite-sized video of just a burst of information. It's more. This is a discussion. This is a conversation. Um, this episode, the first one of this uh, podcast that I haven't decided on a name yet, uh, is uh, going to be on. <clears throat> the pseudomorphosis of orthodoxy. Um, can you explain to us what that is? Oh, that's a term that we use, um, we used in the 20th century about what happened in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, to the Orthodox Church as it was coming out of, um, well, especially the Greek, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church as it was coming out of the 400 years under the Turks. But also the other, the other churches, like uh, the Russians, who were influenced a lot by the West. And uh, what the pseudomorphosis was is that a lot of uh, the new theologians and priests and people who were studying Orthodox theology, uh, we are going to Europe, to both Protestant as well as Roman Catholic universities, especially Germany, but also in Rome, and they were returning back to the Orthodox lands uh, with um, uh, many times uh, basically collections of theological topics that were reflected on and they collected these, these ideas from the Roman Catholics or the Protestants or both of them. And many times um, they were influenced by, because they didn't know themselves the patristic era and they didn't um, they had not studied in depth the fathers of the early church, they would um, produce and introduce into the modern era theological concepts and theological um, ideas that uh, were basically not orthodox and not according to the patristic uh, theology, yeah. which mm -hmm. the orthodox church always had. The other side was the influence on... Um, art and architecture, especially art. I think the, we, we see both in Russia as well as in Greece in the 19th century, the influence of the West uh, Renaissance. And we have these very realistic pictures being developed. And uh, one of the classic uh, icons that I, I refer to when I think of this pseudomorphosis of uh, uh, iconography is the the picture of the father as an old man with a son on his lap and the, and the Holy Spirit depicted as a dove right, right in between them. 
that is really, I would say, a heretical picture. It's um, pretty much uh, Aryan, according mm. to what Arius taught. And if this picture was produced in the fourth century, they will kick you out of the church because that was basically what Arius was saying, that uh, the son is, is younger than the father and there was a time that he was created. Therefore, um, he's not equal to the father. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the depiction of the father as a, um, as a man, as an old man, is really totally unacceptable because we have never seen the father. So you remove from the Trinity the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the unity when you depict the Trinity as three incarnate beings, the spirit yeah. incarnate into a dove, the father as an old man and the son as a young man. So this was part of that pseudomorphosis. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of other things also with regard well, to- let just, Yeah, let me just touch on the, the art for a second before we move on from it. The, the art is, you know, is what we see in the, in, in Renaissance, in the Renaissance sort of, um, you know, tradition, which is a break with tradition, essentially, Renaissance. Um, it, it's where the, the art, it's more about the artist's ability and it's more about about his his skill and his uh, his I don't know his ability to draw realism and and much more involved than what I just said much more to it but depicting the father is is something that that um, that you're right in the early church they would have never have allowed. Um, and in the early church, they, in fact, would ban certain images, like the lamb. They would ban certain images, and, and they were very strict, yeah. very strict. This liberalism, which is what the Renaissance period is, the liberalism of, of artistic expression in the ecclesial sphere. And I don't think people appreciate that today. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate what an icon is. Yeah, I, th I think that um, people love the realistic. It's a natural tendency. Uh, they love the beautiful lines and faces and things like that. And uh, when they see a, a harsher Byzantine style image of a saint or Christ, people uh, are turned off because they're so used to seeing the beautiful colors and the faces that look so uh, realistic. And, and, and so I think all of that influenced the art in the 19th century and both in, in Russia as well as in Greece. Um, Russia, I think, went a little further in that. Uh, Greece uh, recovered a little sooner, but Russia is also recovering today. And I think that it's a great, wonderful thing to see that uh, they're going back uh, to their traditional, uh, yeah. yeah, icons that they used to have. And they're creating amazing, Oh, they have entire, they have entire like, entire workshops where they train. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know hundreds a year. You know, I don't know how many. Yeah, but yeah, they're yeah, training they're, people out. Yeah, they are. They are going back, and and so uh, so also in Greece. In Greece, um, we had Kondoglu who did a lot of good work in restoring the older traditions of iconography, and after Kondoglu, there are others who followed. Uh, today, again, we see a tendency of going to mm -hmm. the artist's uh, 
yeah. own expression and everybody wants to do their own thing and be unique and we stretch the figures and we stretch faces and we do all kinds of things and that is not really expressing the spiritual aspect that the original yeah. iconography was intended to do but it's it's more giving the um the style of the artist more em emphasis and and prominence rather than yeah. removing the artist and allowing the icon to be uh inspiring only in a spiritual way so that's yeah. a tendency it's a human tendency which, and we need to be careful which, with it. but it it's incredibly humanistic if you may it's, it's a humanism isn't it but let's not go there let's okay. let's focus more now on the on the theology of the 19th century and yeah and and, and discuss how that's still affecting us and how it affected even um in your life with your own uh, with yeah yeah with your mother uh you know and and that sort of uh, yeah let's talk about that well, grow, growing up, of course, in Cyprus, we, we were influenced by the Zoe movement and the Sodir movement. Those were uh, two movements um, strongly influenced by Roman Catholicism and Protestantism at the same time, very interestingly. The, the influence of Roman Catholicism was uh, that these group were uh, like, uh, like the orders of the uh, of the Roman Catholic nuns and, and monks, well, orders they call them, they don't even call them nuns and monks, but, uh, but people dedicate themselves to the life of celibacy and they were members of this, this organization, starting with Zoe and then Zoe split into two groups in the 50s and became so dear, uh, the second group became so dear. And these, uh, these groups were basically uh, bringing in uh, emphasis that was um, influenced by the Roman Catholics and also by the Protestants. They were anti-monastic in so many different ways. Sometimes, uh, not all of them, but I think the spirit was anti-monastic. Monasticism is the spirit of orthodoxy, but they claim that they should, could be the, the way they lived and the way they thought. They were in a, in uh, exo-ecclesiastical group, um, groups, both of them, in the end. Um, exo-ecclesiastical means that they were not under the authority of the church. They acted on their own and lived on their own. And, but eventually, I think they, they put themselves, once they were ordained, those who were ordained, they would put themselves under the church. But they, they also did some good. They, I mean, they, the, the Zoe movement, which influenced my mother, for example, and to a certain extent, my father. Um, they had a good influence. They emphasized uh, the study of, of the Bible. They created Bible study groups um, for both men and women, and they emphasized the study of the Bible. But, um, but the spirit, the, the, um, the understanding behind all of that remained uh, kind of a Protestant uh, approach. Yeah. So, so that, that really, affected the Church of Greece a lot and the Church of Cyprus during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah, and yeah. in the 70s, when monasticism began to come alive again, the late 70s and early 80s, they kind of took a second uh, uh, seat to, to monasticism again that was flourishing. So where are they now? Yeah, they're not so important. I don't yeah. know that they have many members as they used to, 
they're not as important as they used to, but that group also provided for the church educated theologians. I mean, Archbishop Dimitrios was a member of the Zoe movement, and yeah. uh, he's a biblical scholar, so, I mean, brilliant man, and, and he dedicated his life. The Archbishop of, uh, of Albania um, is also, Anastasius is also <clears throat> a product of the Zoe movement, and he's a, an exceptional person in the history of the church and the life of the church, and one of the most exemplar uh, people that we have today. So, I mean, we can't really cut them down completely because they produce some really good people. And they did a lot of good work creating um, uh, places for students to live in Athens. And yeah, would you say that? Would you say that? Um, would you say that that they? Uh, I don't know. People took the best parts and and left the rest of it. As yeah, yeah. You know, in the end. Yeah, there was a lot of legalism in Zoe. I mean, there were there was a lot of moralism. I mean, I remember. Right that they were trying to enforce, for example, the women uh, to have uh, long sleeves so that they won't show their, their arms. Yeah. And then they, they allowed them to have shorter sleeves and they allowed them. So they changed themselves over time. So all of these things, there was a lot of moralism. There was a lot of legalism, which did not really go well with the understanding of uh, uh, Orthodox ascesis. Okay, the concept of ascesis was transferred and, and made into laws and rules and regulations. Yeah. Instead of teaching people how to live an ascetic life, they taught them how to obey rules. And if they transgressed the rules, they were kicked out. Or if they transgressed the rules, they were made uh, you know, to feel like they, they, they were great sinners. Things like that, which are yeah. more moralistic Roman theology, Roman Catholic theology, or some of the extreme Protestants do similar things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but would you say that now they're basically gone and, and all the people that went through them that are, you know, like on a, 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 um, Archbishop Anastasios, um, would you say that they took the good parts of that group and left the other parts behind for the most part? Yes, yes, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, yeah. I, I never met uh, Archbishop Anastasios, so, but I know of him and I think that he's... Yeah. A wonderful, uh, wonderful spiritual leader, and so is uh, Archbishop yeah. Dimitrios, uh, who yeah. died, who who retired recently. So I, I think that yes, they they were formed in that group, and they were educated by that group, but in the end they became really Orthodox uh, bishops yeah. that served the church in a great way. And I think there are others that I don't know them because you know I haven't lived in Greece for a long time. So um, who were or, who were made. Who were shaped in in that positive way? Yeah, yeah. So, let, but let's move to a different away from Greece for a moment, and let's go over to Russia. Um, possibly the most influential Orthodox nation in the world at the moment, but definitely the most influential in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 actually, since the fall of Constantinople, probably the most influential. Yeah. Uh, Orthodox nation in the world. So for like 500 years now, um, with a little blip in, 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 in the 1917 to 1990. The first time I really heard you talk about it was, was with that, with them, 
the 19th century again. What, <clears throat> actually, I have a question. Why, what happened between the fall of Constantinople and besides the Ottoman occupation, why did the pseudomorphosis happen? Can you explain that a little further? I mean, why were there no Orthodox schools? Why was Russia so prone to looking to the West for everything? Um, well, Russia didn't have a developed civilization. They didn't have a school system as developed as Europe at the time. After the Renaissance, yeah. after the Renaissance, uh, Europe developed its schools and developed uh, its civilization and, and became um, uh, advanced in technology and advanced in learning and in science. And I think that the, what happened in Russia started primarily with uh, Peter the Great, who um, took a tour of, of Europe uh, incognito and he tried to understand what are the things that he wanted to bring into Russia. And one of the things that he did was edu education and, and universities, they're modeled after the European universities. I mean, they were actually teaching Latin instead of Greek, for example, uh, yeah. until, until even recently. I don't know what's happening now, but uh, so, and then the and he built all those churches, modeling them after the European churches and primarily what he saw in Rome. Um, so so, and of course theologically also he sent people to Europe to learn and come back and and that's how a lot of things came into Russia. Unfortunately, he because was in the, he was in the 1700s. Yes, yes, yes. It was early. So it's, it yeah, took them. Yeah, it took them a couple of centuries, and I don't know their history very, very well in detail, so I can get into it and tell you more. But I know that the beginning of that was was with Peter the Great, and there was influence also by Catherine the Great, who was a Bavarian and took over and and um, yeah. influenced the culture and what was happening, and um, and I think that um, all all of these. Um, led to that movement away from what their older style of music, their older style of iconography, and even yeah. some theological mistakes that were they were absorbing from the Europeans, um, because they, again, they didn't know Greek to study the Greek fathers in depth so that they can actually yeah. correct themselves. Um, and, and so we see that change in, in Russia, which I think some of the saints made a correction, like 19th century saints, like um, uh, Saint uh, Seraphim of Sarov, made a correction in the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the uh, to to you know the emphasis on becoming mm -hmm. dwelling places of the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of that, which was foreign to the Europeans uh, until even recent times, uh, was uh, was the correct corrective move of the Holy Spirit in Russia to bring them back where they needed to. John of Cronstadt, his emphasis on confession, for example, and his emphasis on, on, uh, on, on ascetic life was also um, another corrective. Um, and then, of course, you, you have uh, what happened. And then you have, you have great, great uh, people like uh, Dostoevsky, who wrote amazing um, books, which are literature but theology is in the background because they understood they had the spirit of orthodoxy and they understood orthodoxy in a deeper way yeah so, what in spite of the fact that there were some deviations i think there were some 
corrective forces as well that were keeping yeah. them uh, keeping them in line with Orthodox theology and Orthodox uh, uh, spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- was Dostoevsky educated in, in where was he? Educated? Monastics and uh, he, he, Russia, he, was, he was he was Russia, but to be able he read, to uh, grasp the, the fathers uh, and he had relations uh, with uh, but, yeah to remain within the tradition and to understand what's happening in the West. You know, because because that that's the interesting thing is that it, this just came to me that that orthodoxy is a lot like it's a lot like modal music. It you can't write it out on paper for you to get it. There's a lot of nuance that comes from actual practice. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, and you can write that the nuances down. Of course, there's something like the actual practice, but a lot of the nuances get lost in, 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 in broad strokes. If you, all you do is, you know, all, if all you understand are broad strokes and you don't learn the spirit, uh, yeah. it's a lot like modal music. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where the rigidness of the West, uh, in the East we have, you know, yeah, uh, anyway. Yeah, I think the music is a good uh, parallel it's example. A good, it's a good yeah, because yeah. in uh, in Western music, in Western music, European music, for example, there is a, a great rigidity that you right. need to stay within the boundaries of those notes. And in uh, in uh, the Eastern music, the what we call yeah. Byzantine music, you have this well, ability to create these uh, uh, fractions of the notes and kind of mm-hmm. give them a touch yeah. of your own, according to your own ability and according to your own voice, to give them a touch of this unique. Uh, so that they, you can express emotion in a different way. You can express, and it's not solidly bound by mm-hmm. by the staffs of the of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there are no staffs in Byzantine right. music, so you're right, not right. solidly right. bound by those. So in the right. same way, I think iconography. Um, yeah, well, iconography I, actually I, stays within more boundaries. Okay. And theology stays with boundaries. Music is different. It has an expression that is is yeah, it's, uh, it's different. It needs to be taught. It needs to be you know. You need to kind of like live it if you're going to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, in Orthodox theology, the the idea of economia, for example, which is foreign to the West, is uh, one of those um, uh, things which, again, Western theologians. And I spend a lot of time with Western theologians, and I they have a hard time understanding it. And, and people who come into the Orthodox Church, they have a hard time understanding. What do you mean by that? The rules are rules. This is where where you are, you know. But in, yeah, yeah. in the mercy and love that the Church expresses for the fallen people, economia comes as a way to embrace them and restore them and help them to recover from whatever fall they are in. And so. It, you know, I mean, we, we function in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, they, I, I was just reading a comment on one of our videos, your video on original sin or one of those, and the comment was, can somebody, please, can somebody from the Greek Orthodox Church please tell me what, how to be saved? Like, <laughs> they just, they just, <laughs> they, they just the formula. can't. They want the formula. Yeah, you they want the formula. They want the formula. And original sin, yeah. sin you mentioned, it is another area where, again, there was a lot of pseudomorphosis of, of the Orthodox uh, theologians who went to Europe and brought back formulas of original sin that are actually completely Western, Augustinian, 
and they're not patristic. Uh, and even until the 1950s, we had this um, understanding within the Orthodox Church. And I assume Russia, because I am not, again, I'm not, I'm not familiar no, with it's, theology. It's there too, because uh, one time somebody linked us a, a quote from a Russian saint from the yeah. 19th century, who was basically just repeating original just repeating sin. Roman Catholic theology uh, on yeah. original sin. See, original sin yeah. is a big topic and it's a difficult one oh. because uh, of the use of terms. Uh, when, you, yeah. when you don't define your terms before you start using them, then you're in trouble later mm -hmm. when you say things. And uh, when, when we say original sin in, in English today, of course, the immediate uh, thinking is Roman Catholic understanding or uh, the Protestant right. uh, Augustinian understanding uh, that Calvinists, for example, have. But mm. for us, in, in Greek, it's not called original sin, it's called an ancestral sin. So some modern theologians, Orthodox theologians, who are trying to use the right language, they don't say uh, original sin anymore, they say ancestral sin. Propatorigona uh, martima, the sin of the forefathers. So, um, and I, I have done a lot of work on this, so I'm very comfortable talking about it. And I'm quite, uh, you know, uh, I, I have really discussed this with Roman Catholic theologians and historians extensively. Uh, and, uh, and, and my publication at the St. Vladimir's Theological Quarterly on it, which is part of my dissertation, kind of clarified it for me. And I can talk about this for hours. So. Uh, sure. Original sin is one of those things that was distorted. The, the concept of the change from probadorigona martima to this sin that is transmitted from person to person to their children and that they're condemned to hell unless they're baptized. That is not an Orthodox teaching. And, uh, and today there are people who come yeah. into the Orthodox Church from the West who want to bring back that understanding. And I've been kind of frustrated by that many times because uh, everywhere where they, uh, they encounter it, they try to tell us that, that we are wrong, uh, understanding it in the Orthodox way and that what they're bringing from the West is really what the truth is. So as I said, I'm very comfortable talking about it. And, and you know, it, it was very interesting because growing up uh, in Cyprus, he was brought to Cyprus as well. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure when and where and who brought it and whatever. It was the understanding that was given to the people. So my mother, who was very well theologically uh, aware and, and studied a lot and read a lot, even though she was not really a very educated person, but she read a lot, she had this understanding. Yeah. She was taught that um, a baby, for example, that dies or a baby that she lost would go to hell because the baby had yeah. original sin. She had, the baby had the sin of Adam. And, and because yeah, yeah. the sin of Adam cannot be forgiven unless the baby is baptized, then the baby goes to hell. Well, she, had, uh, she lost five children in her life, um, at least five children that, uh, that I remember. And, and um, after I was in theology and I read a lot and I started learning what this was about, uh, I returned to Cyprus and uh, one day she was lamenting like she used to lament when we were children about the children that she lost. And yeah. that, um, 
you know, how can God, you know, do this? And how can these children be in hell? And, and, I, and I, I said to her, no, 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 that's not the case. This is not what orthodoxy teaches. And she, she kept telling me that that's the way it was, the way she learned it. Anyway, so that actually made me more uh, curious to find yeah, out yeah. exactly what the orthodox theology was about this. And I read and I studied the fathers and, and my dissertation has an entire section on this, which compares Chrysostom with Augustine. And, yeah. and, show, and I show in that how Augustine introduced this idea and I do the historical uh, uh, investigation and how Augustine got this idea, introduced this idea. And of course, Roman Catholicism has suffered from that since that time. And, and they have been deviating from the original understanding since then, including the proclamation of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, which was an effort to yeah. cleanse her from original sin. Because how can she give birth to God if she has original sin? So they had to come up with this idea that uh, she was born without original sin, and that's the immaculate conception. So, you know, one error leads to another, and yeah, or the way I like to, to correct it and correct ourselves first, and correct also these theological misconceptions that exist. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation today. Uh, and there's a lot of lack of uh, morphosis, um, education. And, and maybe we don't have enough time. Do you know how long we've been going for? No. <laughs> oh, good. Um, uh, but I think that there, there's another sort of topic that I kind of want to touch on. Yeah. And it has to do with, you know, sins of the father, if you may that let's say um, somebody, uh, I don't know, murders somebody, and then they have a child. Um, that child could be born uh, deformed, or, you know, I, I think this goes a little bit beyond pseudomorphosis, but it, 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 it reminds me so much of it, or rather lack of morphosis at all, perhaps. <laughs> The complete lack of morphosis, <laughs> possibly, yeah. well, and I... and it and it's something that I've confronted even in the lives of the of the of the nineteenth century saints. I don't want to say who, but but you know, I, I've I've even you know, like so people have been yeah. saying people have been saying things like that, and I and I met people who say things like that. What what that is is um, there are different ways to look at this. Okay, uh, yeah. The way, the way I'm looking at it is, if you go back again to the fathers of the church, the early fathers of the church, uh, yeah. and if you go back to the understanding of, the, of, of God as, as a just uh, father and a just uh, God and a just judge who will not mm -hmm. do uh, anything that's unjust. And this is how mm -hmm. St. John Christopher talks about it with regard to original sin. How can the sin of Adam condemn a person today who, who did not do what Adam did? Okay, so how can God be such an unfair judge? And, and St. Christopher asked the question, would a human judge condemn a person for something that somebody else did? So would a human judge 
put in prison the son of someone else, of someone who who killed. So would would the laws today of men actually arrest a person because they're the son of the daughter of someone who killed? They will not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's not just. So how can anybody condemn a person for something that their father did or their mother did or their grandfather did? Okay. Yeah. So if if a human judge, Saint Chrysostom says, who is not just as as just as God and as fair as God, mm. will not do that, how could God, who is the most judge and the most fair of all? So how can you say that uh, a child is uh, somehow punished by God because of a sin, the sin of the father? Now, having said that. We have to understand the physical uh, heredit yeah, hereditary process, okay? Of Where course. we know that a woman, for example, example who, who uses drugs, yeah. uh, will affect the child that she's bearing in a direct physical way. And so the, ba the baby that will be born will have physical issues, problems, health issues, will have low uh, IQ, who have uh, you know problems with their liver, they have whatever. I don't know what the problems might be, but but the child will bear the sin of the parent. If the pa if that sin is more of a physical condition that affects yeah. the ba the child, okay. The same thing happens, yeah. for example, uh, in a in a not a directly physical way, but the directly emotional psychological way. If the, yeah. if the parent has issues, has uh, anger, or um, is vindictive, or is jealous, or is whatever, that will affect the children because they will be directly affected by the behaviors of their father yeah, or their the mother. We, we know that there are physical conditions and, and environmental conditions and uh, behavioral conditions that cause harm to children by their parents there is no way that God will actually punish a child for something that the parent did. The punishment or the change or the health issues that the, the child inherits from the parent are basically the sin of the parent affecting directly the child. Yeah, the physical, emotional, uh, psychological effect. Well, well, well. Uh, the I mean, if, if somebody has anger issues, I don't think that, I mean, it's genetic, right? That's the, that's the, that's the transmission, not, not because I got angry or someone got angry one time, then, then, you know, yeah, now yeah. your child. Has, yeah, yeah. Well, it could be genetic, know, it could be psychological, it could be. How could it be? Oh, you mean like what you do to them after they're born, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the environment in which they grow up, uh, seeing the father yelling at the mother all the time, yeah. uh, punishing the mother, punishing the children unfairly many times, yeah. uh, being um, uh, unfair in his own behavior. Uh, I mean, we right. see this all the time. There are people who suffer terribly because they, the parents were not good parents, okay? They yeah. didn't behave properly and, yeah. and, they did, and they affect the children psychologically and spiritually. And so that is sin committed that affects them. But it's not God punishing the children, it's the parents that create that condition for the child. Right.
Okay. I think we might pick up on this next time uh, if we think of if we think there's more to, to talk about it. There's always more to talk about. Um, I think we will. I think we will. So anyway, let's let's. Uh, I think this is a good first episode. Uh, we'll give it a name by the next episode. And uh, thank you, thank you, Father Panayoti, for for joining me on this. Thank you, Stradi, and uh, we'll we'll talk, we'll continue. Okay. We'll continue. We'll continue. And thank okay. you to our listeners who are uh, looking to learn more. Indeed. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.